last Sunday evening, I looked with you in the book of Romans in chapter number 7, and I, I did my best to dispel one of the lies that many Christians believe, and that is that the closer that we get to God, the further we walk in our journey, the more mature that we become, the less we struggle with our sin. That's a lie. We know it's a lie. We know from Scripture that it's not true. We know from our own experience in life that it's not true. And yet somehow we still live or try to live as if it is true. And tonight I want to look at another one of those lies that we wrestle with, that there's just certain things, it seems like, certain propositions that we accept as true, even though the Scripture teaches otherwise. Even though our own, own experience tells us otherwise, we still try to make our feelings, make our thoughts conform to these lies about our Christian lives that just simply are not true. The kids and I were watching a, a program the other night about, I don't know what it was, people with crazy pets, you know, pet rats and pet cockroaches and all kinds of disgusting stuff like that. And there was one lady on there, she had, I don't know what kind of snake it was, but I... Y'all, listen, I've already judged anybody that has a pet snake. I know Jesus said, judge not, you be not judged. But if you got a pet snake, I'm, I've already judged you, you know. I can't help it. But this lady had an anaconda, some sort of pet anaconda or boa constrictor that looked like it was about 30 feet long and as big around as this tape. And I thought, lady, if your beloved pet serpent ever wanted to give you a hug, it would be the last hug that you ever got. But a lot of us, as Christians, we're living with those kind of pet snakes. Yeah. We've got these, these, these untruths and this confusion that we live with, and we know it can't be right. We read in the Bible it's not right, and yet we're still wrestling with these anacondas. And the one that I want to talk about tonight is this idea, and very, very simple. And you know it's not true, and yet maybe you're living like it is true, and that is that if you are a good person, you will get a good life. We believe that, though, don't we? There's something in us that, that wants to believe that if I try hard, if I go to church, if I read my Bible, if I'm a good person, if I pray, then everything's going to turn out my way. I've even had people tell me that, people that I've invited to church. They'll, they'll say to me, I know that I need to get back in church because my life just seems to go better when I go to church. And underneath that idea is, is, the, is the supposition that if I'm a good person, then I'll have a good life. And that if I really, really am walking with the Lord, then I'm not going to have any prayers that go unanswered. I'm not going to have any burdens that are so heavy I can't carry them. I'm not really going to struggle through pain. I'm not going to hurt. I'm not going to suffer. And we live in that. And one of the things that happens to us as believers is that when suffering does come, because it is inevitable, we start to sift through the details of our lives like a TV show detective looking for the clue, looking for the fingerprint that explains why we're hurting the way that we are. So I want to take you into the Word of God tonight to a place where Jesus himself confronted this idea head on, and it's in John chapter number 9. John chapter number 9. And I'll just read us a handful of verses tonight, but I really want to bring in detail from the entire chapter. John chapter number 9 and verse 1. 
the word says, as he, that's Jesus, passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. We'll stop right there tonight. But the Gospel of John is written, of course, like all of the Gospels, to give us a greater understanding of who Jesus is, what his mission was, what his purpose was, what he accomplished in all of his living and his dying and his rising again. And in John, uh, he will tell us at the end of the book, he will say, I wrote these things to you that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. John very clearly lays all of his cards on the table and says, I hope that you embrace the truth that Jesus is the God of heaven come into our world to seek and to save us from our sins. But one of the unique facets of Jesus's identity that John focuses in on, I think in greater detail than the other gospel writers, is the controversy that surrounded Jesus everywhere he went. And what John lets you hear in a lot of different places, and you can hear it in John chapter 9, is he lets you uh, kind of eavesdrop on the arguments that people are having about Jesus. Who is he really to just be walking around willy-nilly spitting in the dirt and making mud eyes for people? Who does that? And as you read John chapter number 9, you find that conversation. You find in verse number 8, people asking, well, what has happened to the man that was born blind? And then you find in verse number 13, the Pharisees have to come in and give their precise theological opinion about everything that's happened. And they have to say, well, no, the man couldn't have been born blind because now he was see. Well, no, Jesus interrupted the man's story, and though he was blind, now he can see. Well, that can't be the case because if Jesus really came from God, he couldn't have done a miracle on the Sabbath, not here on the last day of the week, the day of rest. And it's this whole big fight. And then they get into it with the man, and they say, well, were you really born blind? What happened to you? He says, I told you already. Do you want to become his disciples? They say, no, you're his disciple. He said, no, you want to be his disciple. This whole petty argument goes back and forth. And they say, no, we're the disciples of Moses. We've been taught of God. Who is this man, Jesus? And the man says, listen, I don't know everything about him. The only thing I can tell you is that whereas I once was blind, now I see. They say, well, we need you to confess that Jesus is a sinner because he did this on the Sabbath. He said, what sinner could do the kind of works that Jesus did? And you've got all this back and forth about who Jesus really, really is. Who is he? Is he a liar claiming to be something he's not? Is he just some crazy person? that's out claiming to possess the, the ability to heal people of their afflictions. Is he the Savior of the world, the Son of God? Who is he? John tells us in John chapter 1 and verse number 11 that Jesus came into his own and his own received him not. That's what you see here in John chapter number 9. So that the chapter ends with a lesson not about physical blindness, but about spiritual blindness. Look in John chapter number 9. After the Pharisees kick, G, kick uh, the blind man out of the synagogue, Jesus comes and finds him. Jesus heard that they'd cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he? See this question about his identity. Who is he, sir? 
that I might believe in him. Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world and those who do not see, that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. In other words, if you knew you couldn't see, you might come to me for help to be able to see. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But to his many, like the blind man who did receive him, to them gave he the power to become the Son of God. But before you get to all of that deeper meaning in John chapter 9, you've got the question that's on the front end of the chapter. And that is the disciples with Jesus on the way through the temple complex see this man who's being born blind, and they just have to ask. They've got Jesus. They've got the problem of the man born into a life of misery and suffering, and they have to ask, Jesus, who sinned? Jesus, whose fault is it that this pitiful wretch was born in such miserable condition? Who sinned, this man or his parents? Now, what is the thesis underneath the question? The thesis underneath the question is that bad things happen to bad people. And somebody did something somewhere to deserve exactly this kind of thing. Maybe it was some scandalous affair that somebody committed. Maybe it was a business deal where everything wasn't exactly above board. A lot of the Jews in Jesus' day believed that babies could sin even before they were born in utero. And so maybe they thought, well, this blind man before he was born, maybe he said some dirty words in there and the Lord just punished him for him real good. Lord, whose fault is it, really, that all of this happened? The disciples look at the problem. They start adding together all of the data. They pull out their theological calculators, and they reach the conclusion, somebody did something bad. And because somebody did something bad, they got something bad in return. And is it not true that more often than not, that really is the simplistic way that we think about suffering in our life? Think about it. You do not have a New York Times best-selling book with the title, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Without first believing that good things should happen to good people and bad things should happen to bad people. The disciples' question, Lord, who sinned, is misguided and it's misinformed, but it is a good question because it cuts through all the garbage and it gets right to the issue. Do we suffer because we do bad things? My Bible reading this week has taken me into the book of Job. And that's the challenge of the book of Job, is whether or not Job had it coming. You know, his friends showed up. The end of Job chapter number two, and they didn't say anything for a week. And they were fine as long as they didn't say anything. You got any friends like that? I know some folks like that. They're fine as long as they don't say anything, but as soon as they start to talk. And in Job chapter three, Job talks. And he expresses all of his frustration and disappointment. But then in Job chapter number 4, his buddy Eliphaz begins to talk. And Eliphaz says in Job 4, 7, here's what he says. He says, remember who that was innocent ever perished. Job. Job, God doesn't punish the righteous. Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, Eliphaz says, as I have seen, those who plow iniquity, and sow trouble 
reap the same. Job, you know the Bible says that you reap what you sow. And we hear that our whole lives, don't we? Obey God and you will be blessed. Disobey God and well, your sons might be born blind. But is that really what's happening in this passage of Scripture? Or is there more to the story? Well, Jesus tells us right up front there's more to the story, right? Jesus says it's not that anybody sinned that this happened. There's not necessarily always a direct corollary. Now, there, sometimes there is. Sometimes you make, sometimes you play stupid games and you win stupid prizes. That's just life. That's just life. You get drunk and you drive a vehicle, bad things happen. But it's not always the case that that is life. Jesus says it's not that anybody's sinned that this happened. He says it is that the works of God might be displayed. And so tonight, I want to think deeper about this question and deeper about our suffering and deeper about our hurt and our pain by looking at this text and asking this question, what if this man never had been born blind? And if we take that question and answer it well, I think we can begin to understand maybe a little bit deeper about the sources and the reasons for human suffering. So what if this man would have never been born blind? Well, let me tell you this, first of all. If this man never would have been born blind, if he would have been born with his vision, just like I was, then this man never would have experienced a miracle. This man never would have experienced a miracle. Now, that's obvious, isn't it? That's embarrassing to preach that. Because if this man would have been born blind, he wouldn't have needed Jesus to give him a miracle. He wouldn't have needed anybody to help him out. He could have just had what we think of as a normal, high-functioning life. But here is Jesus' analysis of this in verse number 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. He says to his disciples, guys, your thinking is so shallow. Your thinking is so immature. Guys, you need to think deeper and realize that this man's blindness is the very theater where God is going to display his glory. Now, I would ask you tonight, do we think about our pain the same way? Do we think about our suffering and our darkness as the place where God is going to reveal His power and where God is going to reveal His grace? Because often as the people of God, we make the fatal mistake of believing that our suffering, our suffering is a sign of God's absence or God's displeasure. Is it not true that we believe that God's presence makes us happy, that God's presence feels some kind of way. And if we don't have that feeling, and if we don't have that sensation, if life is not happening the way that we think it should, then surely God has walked out on us. I'll tell you this. There are people that used to be in this church, that used to sit in these seats and worship with you, and the reason they are not here, the reason they are not here is because they believe that. And then when life threw them a curveball that they could not handle, they had no more relationship with God because either they believed they had let God down and deserved what had happened or they believed that God had let them down and given them what they did not deserve. Now, we live in a world of painkillers and gas to numb us to everything that hurts at the doctor, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that they don't still do major surgery like they did in the Civil War. That is a blessing of God's grace. But some of you can remember a time when you'd go to the doctor and he would hurt you bad. You'd go to the dentist and they would hurt you bad. But it's in those times 
when the doctor and when the dentist would inflict the most pain that they were doing you the most good. This passage sets before us that same truth, that the darkness that the man was born into would become the platform God would use to reveal His power and would use to reveal His glory. And it shows us this incredible parallel, this incredible even paradox of how God works in the world. In this story, who is it that experiences the power of God? And who is it that is blind to the power of God? The man that experiences the power of God is the beggar. The man who experiences the power of God is the disabled man. The man who experiences the power of God is the man whose own family is trying to throw him under the bus later in the story. But the people who miss the power of God are the people who are important. They're the people that have social influence. They're the people who have the leisure to sit around and ruminate about theological and philosophical questions about suffering. But who experienced God's touch? The man who actually hurt and the man who actually suffered. What does that tell us? That tells us that often God's greatest work shines in the dark. It shines in the dark. And in all of our suffering tonight, if we are the children of God, in all of our pain and in all of our hurt, God will either display His power in removing it or His grace in sustaining it. But either way, God will bring His glory through that. In other words, sometimes God's greatest blessings are down in the mud. Now, that's a weird thing to do to heal somebody, isn't it? To get down and spit. In the, well, I mean, we say it's weird, but you don't know anything about restoring somebody's vision, do you? Maybe it's not weird. I don't know. It did. Why did he do that? I can only guess as to why Jesus chose to heal this man this way. Jesus should, could have just said it. Here's my guess. My guess as to the reason why Jesus healed this man this way was because the very first set of human eyeballs were made out of the dirt. And I think in this moment, Jesus is identifying himself as the God, as the God who made that first set of human eyeballs. And I think we should see Jesus doing that, particularly as he says in verse number five, I am the light of the world, taking upon himself. We saw this in Sunday school today at his arrest in John chapter 18, taking upon himself that Old Testament identification of Yahweh as the I am. Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. And so where is it that our God displays his glory, really, in the Bible? Where does God really display his power? He displays it to people who need it. He displays it to the Israelites when they're standing there looking at the impassable Red Sea with Pharaoh's army behind them at an impossible crossroads. That's where God displays his power. I've told you before and I will tell you again that the story is not Daniel and the pet store. The story is Daniel and the lion's den. God didn't display his power at the pet store when they had puppies on sale two for one. He displayed it in a lion's den with hungry, ravenous lions. He displays his power with sinners that cannot be saved. When he saves them with the blind that cannot be fixed, that is our God. And that's still where he works in our lives too. And so those moments of hurt, those moments when you feel as if God has abandoned you, those moments when you feel that God is distant from you, those are likely the moments when our God is doing his greatest work. And if nothing else, you could know today from this story 
that your pain is in the hand of the same Savior who spit in the mud and made a new set of eyeballs. And your pain is in the hand of the same Savior who formed Adam out of the dust of the garden. And your pain is in the hand of the same Savior who was nailed to a cross and who conquered death and who determines your future. And if that's true, if that's true, then there's more happening than just, I did something wrong and now things are going wrong. If the man would not have been born blind, he would not have gotten his miracle. If the man would not have been born blind, he would not have been useful. The disciples see this man's suffering as a product of his failure or his parents' failures. Jesus sees it as an opportunity to reveal himself as God. It was an opportunity to show his glory. And Jesus showed his glory, not just in the miracle of giving the man eyes, but in the testimony that came out of that miracle. And this is the part of the story that we as Baptists, we gravitate to because we love to see somebody who's just experienced Jesus standing up with boldness saying, listen, I don't have all the answers. But the one answer I do have is that I used to be blind and now I see. And that's what this man does when he's questioned by the Pharisees. But hear me, if this man would not have been born blind, he never would have had the opportunity to say, I once was blind, but now I see. All he could have said was, I could see then and I can see now. And nobody would have cared. Nobody would have cared. You don't care that I can see all of y'all and I don't care that you can see me. That's not, that's just life. But for somebody to be born into darkness and then to experience the light of this world because they were touched by the light of the world, man, that's a story people want to hear. And I guarantee you, think about this. Every time you have ever sang Amazing Grace in your life, you have taken this man's testimony, his words, and put them in your mouth and sung them from your heart when you have said, I once was blind, but now I see. And I guarantee you that when you get to heaven, you meet this man, and you say, brother, was it worth it being born blind? He would look at you and say, knowing that all those people, every time they sang that hymn, took my words and put it in their heart, it was worth it. It was worth it to be made useful. And so as he's cured of his blindness, he becomes a living parable. As he highlights the blindness of the Pharisees, it was his disability, his deformity, his weakness that made him useful in the hand of God. Let me say that to you again. It was his weakness that made him useful in the hand of God. So many times it is the details of our story that we would erase if we were able that make us useful and make our story compelling to others for the sake of the Lord. It's often in the strain of life that God makes us the strongest. And it's often the grit of life that God puts inside of us that transforms us into pearls of God's treasure. Let me just think about it. Was Moses really useful to the Lord at 40? The Bible says he wasn't. I mean, he was educated. He was self-confident. He was capable. He even recognized injustice when he saw it and as a man of action took it into his own hands. But all he did was murder some guy and bury him in the sand. But after 40 years in exile, 40 years of being forgotten, 40 years of following his father-in-law's sheep around the desert. You imagine anything worse than working for your father-in-law for 40 years. After 40 years of working for his father-in-law in obscurity for 40 years, for all of that time, 
he learned what it meant to, sh- meant to shepherd people through the wilderness for 40 years. And what did he do with the next 40 years of his life? He shepherded people through the wilderness for 40 years. Was Samson ever really useful until he went blind? Was Jacob ever really able to walk with the Lord until he walked with a limp? Here's one. As Baptists, one of our great heroes, the closest thing that we have to a saint as a Baptist is the missionary Lottie Moon. If you know much about her life, you know that Lottie Moon is a missionary to China was a single lady and was able to do much more as a single lady than she would have been if she was married and if she would have been a mother. But while we know Lottie Moon's name, does anybody know the name Crawford Toy? Crawford Toy was Lottie Moon's fiance. He was a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, went on to teach Hebrew studies at Harvard Divinity School. But she broke up with him because his theology was drifting into a harmful direction, and she recognized it. And he had no desire to go to China. She recognized that's where God had called her. If it wasn't for that breakup and that pain, would she have been as useful? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter number 12 and verse number 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation. Now, Let me just interrupt Paul right there and tell you this, that most all of us struggle with pride. We do. In fact, that's about the only thing that we struggle with, and everything else is just a symptom of that struggle. About all of us struggle with pride. We're just just too proud to admit it. But Paul actually had something to be proud of. You know, we're proud when we invite somebody to church. Paul wrote the Bible, and he's just said in 2 Corinthians 12 that he had had a vision where he was caught up in the third heaven. I I spray Roundup on the weeds at a work day, and I feel like somebody should pat me on the back. Like, look at me down here serving the Lord. Paul actually had something to be proud of. But the Lord knew that that pride could fester into something that would make him useless because Paul could become more about Paul than he was about Jesus. So to keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Then Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul said, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness. You know what that tells me? That tells me that the thorn worked. It worked because a conceited person does not say, for the sake of another, I am content with weakness. The thorn worked to keep him useful. Take your hymn book. Here's something we hadn't done in a while. Take your hymn book and look on page number 843. 
843 in the red book. And you'll find on page number 843, this is the um, just the index of authors. And I want to call your attention to a particular author's name. Page number 843, you'll see in the top left-hand corner that this is the end of the authors whose names begin with the letter C. And then you begin with the authors whose names begin with the letter D. But look back about halfway in those remaining names that begin with the C and find the name of Fanny Jane Crosby. You have her name right there? It says she lived from 1820 to 1915. And I counted uh, in, our, in, our, in this particular hymn book that we have here, there are, I believe, 16 of her songs that she wrote in our hymn book, 16. Of the 8,000 that she wrote in her life. Songs like, Jesus, Keep Me Near the Cross. Blessed Assurance. To God be the glory, great things He has done. And on and on and on. Fanny Crosby wrote the soundtrack to my childhood. And Fanny Crosby was blind. She wasn't born blind. But as a small child, she suffered an eye infection, and the family hired what they thought was a doctor who turned out to just be a local idiot and who concocted a poultice upon her eyes that blinded her for the rest of her life. Spent all of her life in the dark. And yet her words and the expressions of her heart and her heart of faith have given voice to so much of our own spiritual lives. Here's what she said. It seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life. And I thank Him for the dispensation. She said, If perfect earthly sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. I might not have sung hymns to the praise of God if I had been distracted by the beautiful and interesting things about them. Those parts of our lives we wish we could remove because they hurt, those things make us very useful. Third, if this man would not have been born blind, he would have never seen Jesus. He would have never seen him. You think about it. He wouldn't have been at the temple that day. He was at the temple to beg. But his path never would have crossed with Jesus because what would he have been doing? Anything, literally anything else. He would have been at work or you know, whatever he was the little league game. I don't know what he would have been doing, but he wouldn't have been here doing this. And so this man who begins this story in blindness ends with vision. This man who begins as just a, a problem where his disciple, the disciples of Jesus can figure out their theology of evil. This man begins the story in dark and he ends in the light. He begins as a problem to be solved. He ends as a person with a story. And he meets back up with Jesus after all the smoke clears in verse number 35. And Jesus asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, the man knows without having... Remember, he hasn't actually seen Jesus. He hasn't seen Jesus. He's heard him. He recognizes his name and his voice. So he knows who he's talking to. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Messianic title from Dan, Daniel chapter number 7. Do you believe in the Messiah? Have you accepted the Savior? That's what Jesus is asking him. This man has just been healed by Jesus. He is going to be... Low-hanging fruit, a perfect target. 
He is going to be susceptible to anything Jesus tells him. Jesus has just given him the ability to see. And he says, well, who is the Son of Man? Look, you made me see. You tell me who the Son of Man is, and I'll believe in him. Look at how Jesus answers in verse number 37. Who is the Son of Man that I might believe in him? Jesus answers and says to him, you have seen him. Now, that's not just Jesus saying you're looking at him. Even though it is Jesus saying you're looking at him. That's Jesus saying, you're looking at him, and when you woke up this morning, you couldn't look at anything. And who is it that made the difference from your darkness and your light? Jesus says, you have seen him, and the one speaking to you is me. You never saw the sun come up. You never saw the sun come up. But now you've seen the Son of God. It's me. And the Bible says that he believed and that he worshipped. And then... And what is, I think, the true point of the story, he's set in contrast with the Pharisees who are in their spiritual darkness because they cannot admit to their blindness. They can't be honest. It's a powerful word about the Pharisees. The Pharisees missed Jesus because they could not be honest about themselves. So what you're supposed to take away from this story, I think, is that there's, as difficult as it is for us to imagine being born blind, or, or, or being stricken with blindness. There's actually something worse than being blind. And that is living in the dark spiritually. Missing Jesus is worse than being born blind. Spiritual darkness. But if this man would have been born with his sight, he never would have met Jesus to believe in him and to worship him. So it is that this whole interaction was a setup for God to do what only he could do and to give this man more than he ever could have asked for. This man started the day and all he wanted was a few quarters in his can to buy a sandwich and to get through another day until he could beg again. But by the time the day's over, he can see and he's met God. God not only gave him new eyes, but he gave him a new heart. And it's a good reminder for us tonight that our God always gives us more than we ask for. Always gives us more than we expect. And I would suspect that even if you cannot see the end of the story, that tonight our Savior is doing the same thing in all of your hurt. As much as we might try and simplify it and say, well, something bad happened to me, and so that must mean I did something bad to deserve it. The truth of the matter is that God is probably doing something far greater than you could imagine in your pain. Far greater than you could ever comprehend, far greater than you ever could dream or ever could pray for. Arthur Pink said about this passage, he said, of this we may be sure, that whatever is for God's glory in us will bring blessings to us. Whatever is for God's glory in us will usually bring His blessings to us. I read this week the story of two men, Bill Walton and Bob Gross, who played for the Portland Trailblazers, for the NBA uh, and they were the championship team in 1977. And both of these men suffered catastrophic ankle injuries in the 1978 season when the Trailblazers were on track to repeat their national title and should have won. Both of these men went down, and that pretty much upended their entire season. But here's what one of them said about his experience. He said, on April the 18th, 1978, when I had an undiagnosed stress fracture in my foot, they injected me in my foot and ankle with a massive amount of pain-killing medication. I went out and played in this game. 
Hadn't been able to play in months. Went out and played, and the undiagnosed stress fracture, fracture, the bone in my foot split in half. And it happened because he put too much stress on it. And he put too much stress on it because the team said, you need to get back out there. We need you. We've got to have you. And so what we'll do is we'll inject these painkillers into your foot. And it won't hurt you anymore. It won't bother you. You'll be able to play like you've always played, and you won't feel a thing. Bob Gross, same team at the same time, said, I didn't feel anything when the bone fractured. I only heard the noise. We all wish we could ignore pain, don't we? We all wish we could numb ourselves to it, make it go away, and live in a way that does not hurt. But we need to understand there's always a bigger picture at work in our pain and in the pain of others around us. Because if you do not understand that, then here's what's going to happen to you. What will happen to you is you will become like the disciples. And you will become uncaring and unconcerned about other people that are around you that are hurting. Do you see how the disciples were? They just see this guy and they say, hey, Lord, Jesus, tell us something. Who sinned? We know it's somebody, this man or his parents. The thing that's terrible about that is that the man was born blind. He wasn't born deaf. And he likely heard the followers of Jesus ruminating about the sins his parents had supposedly committed that brought this upon him. They're totally callous and totally uncaring. Why? Because they think, well, this is just what people deserve. Do we not do the same thing? Do we not do the same thing? People suffer. Well, they just should have made better decisions. Should have raised their kids better. Should have been smarter with their money. Never should have took those drugs. People become problems or people become invisible. Verse number eight, after the man is healed, everybody's just amazed. But then listen to what happens. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some, beg? Some said, oh, it's him. Others said, no, nah, but he's like him. You know what that tells me? It tells me these people saw him, but they never really saw him. Because when it counted, they didn't recognize him. Is that him? I don't know. It looks kind of like him, but ugh, I don't know. You ever see those people that are begging for money by the side of the road with a sign that says, we'll work for food? You ever see them without really seeing them? That's what they're doing to this man. His problem has just become part of the background and nobody really saw him. The people walking with Jesus didn't see the man. They just saw a problem. And that's what will happen to us. If all we ever think is, well, put bad in, you get bad out. Life is just a big vending machine and they should have done better. But you won't get by with that forever. And the reason you won't get by with that forever is because eventually... You're going to hurt. Eventually, it's going to be your children. Eventually, it's going to be your problem, your challenge, your sickness, your struggle. And then you're going to have to do some digging. And so many times we dig and dig and dig in our hearts and we dig in the wrong direction. And we ask ourselves, God, what did I do to deserve this? And we may say that in a way that is, Accusing ourselves, we may give in to despair, or we may say it in a way that is accusing God. God, what did I do to deserve this? I've been faithful my whole life, and look what you've done to me. 
But at root, that is always self-righteousness. It's always self-righteousness. The belief that God owes us. And really, self-righteousness is always just self-reliance. This man would have been born blind. He wouldn't have needed Jesus. And a lot of us are trying to be really, really good in life so that we always get good out of life, so that we never really need Him, so that we never really need to trust Him, so that we can push back those days that make us fall helpless at His feet, so that we can fight those moments when we have to cry out to Him and say, God, I don't understand, so that we can always be in control. It's our goodness, our morality, and all the answers to all the questions that we've got filed away like the disciples were trying to file away. Is that just a means for us to have control over our lives? Is that just a means for us to keep everything together? Or do we realize that even with all of our vision, even with all of the good things that we do enjoy in life, the truth is we still need Jesus just as much as a blind beggar did in John chapter 9. I need my life to be the theater where he shows his power and he shows his glory. And if I have to hurt to do that, I promise you one day it will be worth it. Fanny Crosby, whom I mentioned a minute ago, she said that she really had no problem being blind most of her life because she said, when all's said and done, the first face I'll ever see is Jesus. And I'll just tell you this, not to minimize your pain, not to ignore what hurt you may carry today, but when you see Him, it'll be all right. When you see Him, it'll be okay. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful, Lord, even for hard days and for real pain and for scars that we carry. Because it's in those moments that you bring us in our helplessness to Jesus. Cast us upon his mercy and he never fails. God, there are people that are here tonight that are suffering. And Lord, their thought really is like the disciples. Well, somebody must have done something to deserve this. And Lord, maybe they're accusing you or maybe they're accusing themselves. God, I pray that you would help them to examine themselves. But Lord, I pray that you would also help them to think about your purposes, your plans and your power at work in their lives. God, we would say with this blind man, Lord, do your work in us. Lord, even if your work looks like you spitting in the mud and making us go wash it off, even if it's absurd and backwards and illogical to our minds, do your work in us. Show your glory through us. Meet with us, God, when we meet again and go with us until we do. And keep us useful. And we pray in Christ's name.